We are live in the Bergino Baseball Clubhouse at 67 East 11th Street in the landmark Cast Iron Building, Greenwich Village, City of New York. We start tonight as we always do. To those of you who are here for the first time, welcome. To those who have been here before, welcome home. Tonight's book, Split Season 1981, Fernando Mania, The Bronx Zoo, and The Strike That Saved Baseball, published by Thomas Dunn Books, written by Jeff Katz. Please join me as we welcome Jeff Katz to the clubhouse. Uh, welcome, Jeff. And uh, just before we get going, uh, I just want to read your a little mini bio. As you can tell, we're in New York. No, you can leave it open, Pat. It's all right. Let's the podcast listeners know where we are. So uh, hopefully it stops at some point. Uh, and mainly for the people listening to the podcast, I normally don't read these little bios, but for this one, there's so much in it, I just want to read it, read it so I don't forget anything. Uh, Jeff Katz is the mayor of Cooperstown. As a sports writer, Katz had his first short story published in Play It Again. His first full-length book, The Kansas City A's and the Wrong Half of the Yankees, was released in 2007 and received notable mentions. Katz has also authored two blogs, Maybe Baby, or You Know That It Would Be Untrue, and Mission of Complex, a blog about raising his autistic son, who after years of struggling has graduated from college and started a successful career in art. Katz was also music editor for Ragazine. Once upon a time, he lived in Chicago and traded options at the Chicago Board Options Exchange. With his wife and their three sons, Katz headed east in 2003 for a new life and never looked back. And tonight he's in the clubhouse. Well, that does sound good. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so before we get into this fabulous mm-hmm. book, Split Season 1981, we have, uh, uh, I guess, more than you may know in common. So I just yeah. want to uh, touch on this before we get going. The uh, I was a sports agent for many years. I definitely was not an options trader. I can get <laughs> that would have been a disaster. Uh, but I was a sports agent for many years, and uh, when people say, "Oh, you must miss it." I say, you're nuts. I I don't miss it for one second. Before that, though, I did work in politics. Uh, I worked for the leading political image maker in the country, uh, for which I was very fortunate. I never ran for office. Uh, But I find it fascinating. And uh, it's not like if somebody says, I was lucky enough to work on campaigns for the mayor of New York, but somebody says, oh, I'm the mayor of uh, Rhinebeck or I'm the mayor of uh, 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 Oneonta, nobody really cares. But, <laughs> the, <laughs> but the mayor of Cooperstown, right. people are fascinated. Right. So uh, when did you actually become the mayor of Cooperstown? So I became mayor in 2012. So there's a little background. So we moved in 2003. Um, and in 2005, I was asked to run as a village trustee. It's a six-person board. It was always hard to get people to run. I had stopped trading. I was just kind of kicking back. So I said, sure, I'll run. And hopefully this comes out in the book. You know, I'm, I'm pretty diligent in making sure I know what I'm talking about. <laughs> so I did a lot of research, talked to a lot of people who had come before me, and knocked on every door. Now, I, I think most people who who has not been to Cooperstown, this is probably a room where everyone has been to Cooperstown. <laughs> okay, and Aaron's going to be here this, this weekend. So almost everyone's been there. Cooperstown is so small. There's only 1,850 people who live there, so most of you live in buildings of much greater size than that. (laughs) Um, 
So I went door to door. I knocked on 900 something doors, and I won. There were four people running for two seats. Most people said to me, "There's no way you would win. You're a Jew from Chicago. You're not going <laughs> to win from Cooperstown." I got the most votes. The guy who got the second most votes is the guy who plays Santa Claus. <laughs> so I, I like that show. Um, but when I got into the village government, you know, it was literally a group of eighty and ninety year olds. And Cooperstown, for all its fame, I always say there's nothing that means more outside and less inside than saying you're the mayor of Cooperstown. <laughs> Um, there was not a level of professionalism to it. And Cooperstown, like a lot of places, has a lot of budgetary problems. The money we generate locally does not stay with us. It goes to the county. So I started kind of advocating to clean up our business. And that was not very popular with a lot of people. So, But by 2010, I was the deputy mayor. I was a Democrat, endorsed by the Republican mayor, ran for mayor, challenged by a... a relative newcomer to the board who had grown up in Cooperstown, and I got smoked. I lost by 100 votes, which doesn't sound like a lot, but <laughs> when 750 people come out to vote, which was the biggest turnout like in Cooperstown history, um, I lost by a sizable amount. In the following year, most people thought I was kind of like, finally, they were rid of me. But I ran for trustee again in 2011. I won. By that time, the guy who beat me had been controversial in his all in own right, but in a way that was perceived as, as negative. Uh, in 2012, I said, I'll run again. He said I wouldn't, uh, or said he wouldn't, and I ran unopposed in 2012 and 2014. Keep in mind, technically, the mayor is a part-time, no-salary job. Uh, part-time is as much as you make it, and I'm very busy um, with it, but like you say, being the mayor of Cooperstown, it certainly helped in the research. It's very hard to get blown off talking to a player when you lead with, I'm the mayor of Cooperstown. <laughs> Before that, it was like, who are you? <laughs> so yeah, it, it, it's a really fun thing to be. Are you allowed to run for another term? or? Yeah, yeah, it's two-year terms. There's no term limits. I mean, I've been in office a long time, and we've done a lot of things. I won't bore you all with the minutia of... In implementing paid parking in Cooperstown. But, <laughs> but know that like we generate $400,000 a year when we only tax a million seven. It was a huge change to the village. You can see it, Bob will be up next week, you can see it in the, in the village. Things are getting built, things are being, getting repaired. Um, but small town politics is really interesting. And uh, when I was an options trader, I was n particularly known for being thin-skinned. In fact, I was <laughs> I was referred to as the king, which was short for the king who dishes it out and can't take it, can't take it. <laughs> In Cooperstown, somehow, I have developed the thickest skin. But, you know, 10, 11 years into it, every once in a while, you know, you're tired of people telling you what a jerk you are. Things are not necessarily the best uh, character trait for, for a politician. No, no. Thankfully, somehow I switch gears. Yeah, good. All right. So now we'll switch gears okay. to, to <laughs> split season 1981, which is fantastic. Thank you. And first of all the years in baseball, I know there's, it takes a lot of work mm. to write a book. We have some of the great baseball writers in the country here tonight, and. You obviously decided, uh, right. this is what I'm going to write about. So of all the baseball seasons, why 1981? So many people in this room read Roger Angel and used to read his big year-end recaps. 
And when Roger wrote about um, the 1981 season, he talked about the silence of that summer, where all of a sudden the ancillary noise of baseball, the radio and cabs, the walking down the streets in New York and seeing games on TV disappeared. Uh, and that was such a great image. Uh, it always stuck with me. Plus, I was 18 going on 19. Losing baseball that summer was very meaningful to me, probably more than any other strike. By 94, I was 32. I had kids. I didn't like that there was a strike, but it didn't have the emotional impact that 81 did. Um, what is fascinating to me is no one ever wrote a book about it. There wasn't even a book about it in 1982. Um, in fact, Doug DeSensei, who's... Uh, was a good source and one of the main negotiators, he had told me he had thought about writing a book with Jim Kaplan from Sports Illustrated, but Doug decided he still wanted a career in baseball, so he decided decided not to do that. Um, So I did it. Um, It was fortunate for me that I started in 2008. I got to talk to Marvin Miller a few times. I got to actually spend the day with Ray Greeby at his house in Connecticut. He was the owner's negotiator. Uh, And then... I kind of had enough as a starting point for like a proposal, um, but then it lay dormant for a little bit. I started writing some other things, and then um, we revisited it a few years ago, and it was still the gem of not just an amazing story about the players and, and a very principled cause, but in the context of a season, right? Every other strike either kills the season or delays the season. This one is just a gap. There was baseball, there was no baseball, there was baseball. And there's no other real story like that. Uh, if it was at 85, there was like a one-day strike. And I actually had tickets for the Yankees <laughs> that, that day. <laughs> um, but I wanted to tell the story. And what I found from the players who were very involved in it, they wanted the story told. They felt that it hadn't been told in the way that they wanted it to be. So I was honored that they listened to me. But I did talk to owners as well and was happy to, to write the story. Ed, how are you? Good, how are you? Good, the great Ed Lucas. Good, thank you. <laughs> got your front and center, Ed. We don't normally have, we don't have commercials or anything, but Ed has a <laughs> brand new book out, Seeing Home, which is really beautiful and fantastic. Thank you. Uh, oh, sorry, we're late. It's, it's New York traffic. <laughs> yes. yes. All right. I'll fill you in on what you missed. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, Is no, it's yours. It's yours. Thank you. Thank you to the gentleman. <laughs> uh, the so uh, part of uh, what I really what I thought was uh, fantastic in the book mm-hmm. is the uh, kind of the characters involved in the strike. Yeah. So you have. Marvin Miller, on, on one hand, you kind of have Marvin Miller, Ray Greeby, and Bowie Kuhn. And then you have some ball players mm-hmm. that really are prominent. So I think maybe if we just kind of touch mm-hmm. on each one, and just anything that hits you right. about them. Uh, some of the folks in here obviously know an extreme amount about <laughs> some of these right. people, and some may not know right. much at all, especially those listening. Right. But just in a brief way, so let's start with, uh, let's, let's start with the commissioner, Bowie Kuhn, right. at the time. So Bowie Kuhn became commissioner in 1969, um, and in some ways, and I don't mean this in a sympathetic way, he's, he's a tragic figure, and kind of tragic in, let's say, buffoonery. Um, he was a commissioner who was the first one who had a deal with someone like Marvin Miller, 
He was a commissioner who still believed he could be a commissioner like Judge Landis, like Ford Frick, like Happy Chandler, guys who really believed they represented owners and players alike. It took Marvin Miller to point out how ridiculous that is. And, and now all of us who saw the elevation of Bud Sealing from owner to commissioner know what a silly notion that is. But it was a notion he believed in. And he was incredibly arbitrary. Uh, he would often use this idea of the best interests of baseball. In fact, in his own notes in some of his papers, he'll put like B-I-O-B, like his little <laughs> clever notes to himself. Um, so he had a deal with Marvin Miller, who was brilliant and smart. And as Marvin said, when you enter an industry that's 100 years behind the times, it's not hard to make uh, some quick strides. So in a very small way, I know your podcast listeners can't see how small. In a very small way, I feel sorry for Bowie Kuhn. Uh, not very much, but he was, he was uh, as Brian Wilson said, he wasn't made for his times. And how about Marvin Miller? So Marvin came to be executive director of the Players Association in 1966. Players Association existed, and Bob, you can correct me if I goof. Um, the Players Association existed, but they were really powerless. Um, there are stories from people like Bob Feller, Duke Snyder, I mean, greats of the game who were involved in the association, who would ask the owners uh, if they would consider putting a door on the bathroom stalls, and the owners would be like, Why? Why would you need such a thing? So the players were incredibly powerless, um, which I think surprised Miller, who came from U.S. Steel. Um, Miller was just a great leader. He explained to people what was going on. In fact, his first encounter with Kuhn uh, is at a meeting purportedly to discuss the pension plan in 1966. Uh, I think with Spike Eckert was commissioner, maybe it was 67. Uh, and they met. Miller is expecting negotiations, which is how things really work in the labor world. As mayor, we have a couple of unions, even though we're a small village. You have to discuss them. They sit there. Spike Eckert says, okay, so we're going to go announce the new terms. And Marvin says to Bowie Kuhn, who is the NL lawyer, uh, you can't do that. That's illegal. And letting your commissioner go out and say that will show everyone how illegal it is. Um, so I think Miller saw all the problems Part of it was dealing with players who, on the whole, are a very conservative group. Even guys who got very active in the union in 81, they didn't like uh, the union as a label. Doug DeSensei, who was an integral member of the negotiating uh, team, would get into these arguments with Marvin. DeSensei felt it was an association. <coughs> he didn't like the term union. Phil Garner, who was a really powerful advocate, <coughs> really came at it from like a Randian point of view. He was not a union guy, he was like, who are these people that tell us what the terms of our employment are? We should have the freedom to do whatever we want. Uh, so Miller was able to kind of, I think, mostly in an education role, explain to players what their options were, explain the law, explain proper label, labor negotiations. And fortunately for him, he had a smart group of guys and a very competitive group of guys who were going to win whatever they set out to win. Uh, and the owners never quite understood that. And of the, of the three, the one who probably the people know the least about would be Ray Greeby. So Greeby is really kind of a, a, a footnote in baseball history. The owners had brought him in in 1978 as a person to lead them into more professional negotiations. Greeby came out of General Electric, which was known for really hard-line negotiations, union-busting. 
owners felt they could bring him in, he would be a professional person who could, you know, lock horns with with Miller. Um, But it wasn't going to work. And there were many reasons it wasn't going to work. One is, you know, what Grieby expected was his own set of professional (laughs) labor terms, which is you go to the table with the representatives of the labor force and you hash it out. Management's behind the management guy. The rank and file is behind the union guy. Grieby had to deal with not just the core union guys, which was Miller and Don Fear as attorney, and a core group of, of league representatives, but a kind of revolving door of players who would come in and out. The union said, look, this is yours as much as it is ours. Be in. So Grieby, it drove him crazy when players would come in, and he had notoriously bad times and kind of funny stories with people like Reggie Jackson and uh, Rusty Staub. The other side is, from his own people, he got nothing because the owners were divided between hardliners, newcomers, moderates, guys who didn't feel that this compensation issue was worth striking over. The, the communication from Greeby was divided into, like, he would tell the hardliners one thing, the moderates another thing to kind of keep the negotiation going. But he had kind of a mess on his own side, and he really didn't quite know how to handle the players, uh, which certainly worked to the players' advantage. Plus, to be fair, or not to be fair, <laughs> to be straight, Marvin was much better at it than he was. I mean, Marvin Miller knew what he was doing. He knew how to call out the owners on their nonsense, and he was brilliant at it. Uh, no one really had a chance, particularly a guy like Ray Green. And some of the players, you've mentioned a couple mm-hmm. names, but it brought back so many memories while I was reading the book just about these mm-hmm. guys who you, you don't think about, mm-hmm. really. But maybe just to talk about some of them, uh, Steve Rogers. Let's start with Steve Rogers. Yeah. So Steve came up with the Expos in 72 or 73 and immediately got into the union. He said, you know, he was an engineer um, at a university of Oklahoma, I think, uh, so they thought he was smart. So they put him <laughs> in this role. Uh, but Steve's a very competitive guy. i got to tell you, there were times I talked to him and I had something wrong, and, man, I was very intimidated. Um, like the way he came back at me, he's like, you do not, you, you have got this totally backwards. You don't know what you're talking about. I'm like, Okay. <laughs> That's why I'm asking you. Um, but Steve was elevated to, uh, to a high rank uh, and was a very competitive guy and was not willing to kind of deal with the owners on their terms, which is kind of what the owners expected. It's interesting when you read about owners testifying at National Labor Relations Board hearings. You know, the, the owner's representatives say things like, you know, Mr. Carpenter of the Phillies, you know, is, does not usually get treated this way. Like, who are these guys? These are not the royal family. These are either fortunate family members of the DuPont family or they're just guys who own teams. They're not, you know, kings and queens. Uh, and the players didn't treat them that way. And it really made the owners and the league executives kind of blow a gasket when guys like Steve Rogers would call them out on it. And another player you mentioned, which I love some of the... Uh, I think you've even seen him in Cooperstown, mm-hmm. uh, Rusty Staub. So Rusty um, Rusty was one of the kind of revolving door players. He came in, he was based in New York, and he would come in, and um, there were some very funny stories where Rusty would come in with crossword puzzles, <coughs> basically saying, you know, if you're going to play word games, let's 
let's play word games. Um, <laughs> and he hated Rigby, and I'll tell you a story from last year about that. Um, and when the strike was settled, it was it was so ugly that you know even Miller wouldn't take a picture with Greeby. It was almost a strike in 1980. It was settled, except for this one issue of free agency compensation. In 81, Miller wouldn't take a kind of settlement photo with Greeby. Greeby goes to Staub to shake his hand, and Rusty's like, I'm not going to shake your hand. I'm not your friend. And he's kind of like running. There's this scene of Greeby chasing <laughs> Staub around the table trying to shake his hand. So every year uh, during induction, some local, let's call them VIPs, get invited to a couple of weekend parties. As mayor, I get invited. When I was a trustee, I got invited as well. So there are guys I had talked to that I wanted to kind of thank face-to-face, and there were guys who I didn't get to talk to. Uh, and my wife, Karen, actually was talking to Rusty Staub. On our first date, we went to uh, a Knicks game, and we went to Rusty's for ribs. So she was telling him the story. And I think Rust- <laughs> Rusty's heard a lot of stories of people who had dates at Rusty's. So I go in there, and I'm talking to him, and I said, oh, you know, I wanted to touch base with you. I'm doing a book on the 81 strike, and I spent the day with Ray Greeby. Um, he, I, I ended up apologizing for just bringing up the news. He, he was so irate. Still, 33 years later, it was just as fresh as it was in 81. I was like, oh, sorry. I didn't. This would have been better on the phone than in person. It was very uncomfortable. <laughs> And uh, the last player, before we kind of pivot to another mm-hmm. part of the story, uh, Tom Seaver. So Seaver, Seaver is really my hero. And Seaver is a... a I'm, gonna t- I'm staying a while, so if you can stay. There's a lot of good stories. When Seaver got traded in 77, I was 14 going on 15, and I was a big Mets fan. And they traded Seaver, and it broke my heart. For those of you who grew up in New York, you remember waiting for the 11 o'clock news, it was the trade deadline, there he was in the clubhouse, he was crying, he's like, come on, George, you know, he's trying to talk, broke my heart. And what I realized at the moment was that I liked Tom Seaver way more than I liked the Mets. I just did. And it changed the whole way I looked at baseball. I lost a real rabid rooting interest in a team and came to the conclusion that the game is about the players and the other stuff, the team names, the uniforms, the stadiums, <laughs> are all about the owners. But that's not why we love the game. We love the game for the players. Flash forward to 2003, Seaver's at the Hall of Fame for like a Q&A midweek, and I'm there, very much kind of a fanboy. I have my program from his first game back as a Red. <laughs> I have a program from his 300th game at Yankee Stadium. I was back from college. And I didn't want any autographs or anything. I have Seaver autographs. But it was really nice to tell him that story. Last year at um, one of these Hall of Fame parties, I'm standing at the bar. There's a lot of stories that involve me standing at the bar. (laughs) (laughs) And someone's next to me. And I turn around, and it's Nancy Seaver. So all of us have our image of Nancy Seaver. So she was, you know, Tom and Nancy were the glamour sports couple in New York. So I'm like, Nancy Seaver. I mean, she doesn't know me, but I'm like, yeah, I couldn't contain myself. So I tell her this story, <laughs> and, uh, and I said, you know, it was then I realized I loved Tom Seaver more than the Mets, and she said, that's when I realized it, too. 
which was very sweet. So, so then I say like, oh, you know, I'm sorry. Like, here's this poor woman like just wants a drink and like she's got to deal with me. Uh, so I said, oh, I'm sorry. Do you want some? She's like, well, Tom needs a club soda. I'm like, oh, let me get that. I'm like, oh, I'm getting a drink from Tom Seaver. And, you know, you're Mayor of Cooperstown. Have some decorum. Don't ask if you can go talk to Tom. Just be calm. So that was it. I kind of walked around the party. I was about to go. I went for a snack. I turned over. There's Seaver. And uh, this is kind of, so I'm going to answer your question. I'm not that You are. You are. Okay. So Seaver represents to me everything great about a certain type of player. Let's call it the modern player. Smart, smart in general, smart about his craft, serious, eloquent. Some of his quotes in 81 about how the owners don't understand that the players are trained to be competitive. That is their job. And that the owners think the players are just going to roll over is such a lack of understanding about the game. So here I am with Tom Seaver. I introduce myself. And we start talking, and it wasn't about, now it wasn't about, ooh, look at my scorecard. You know? um, I started, I've been interested about this, like, you know, when people become famous, you know, how does that change people? So I kind of asked him this question, I said, you know, you know you're Tom Seaver, you, know, you have a plaque over there, you know, what is that like? And he went into this whole thing about, what motivates him, what motivates people, why you wake up in the morning. He's applying the same um, aggressiveness and dedication to his vineyard as he did to baseball. And, and it was you want the, the club soda? You want the club soda? Well, I don't <laughs> think they didn't have his wine at the bar. His wine's a little pricier than that. Um, but it was this whole understanding of Tom Seaver's philosophy of life. At one point, actually, you know, he was eating and talking and he kind of spit on me a little bit. And he like, he, like rubbed it off and I'm thinking... <laughs> okay. So for 20, 25 minutes, I was talking to Tom Seaver, and he was everything that I had imagined him. And in 81, not only does he have a fantastic season, you know, maybe second only to Fernando's in terms of quality, but he is really just an incredibly smart and eloquent spokesperson for the union. Which brings us to Fernando Mania. Yeah. And... I have to ask this question on behalf mm-hmm. of someone named uh, Jim Montemuro, who's a clubhouse regular, who's devastated that he could not be <laughs> here tonight. He also uh, loved Tom Seaver, and uh, as did I. Mm-hmm. June 15, 1977, I, right. I cried all day yeah. uh, <laughs> and all night. Uh, uh, and he wanted me to ask you about, and I don't want to get into all the statistics and the Seaver yeah. metric mm-hmm. stuff, and, but just briefly, Seaver was 14-2 and two that season. Fernando was 13-7. and seven. Their ERAs were the same, 2.48, 2.54. So he wanted me to ask you on his behalf, and I'm interested as well, do you think Fernando won the Cy Young because of the Fernando mania? Uh, and should it have gone to Tom Seaver? Well, it, it is funny because that has always bugged me. I didn't put it in the book, but I always felt Seaver should have won it in 81. He was 14-2. and two. The Reds had the best record in baseball, but in looking at something recently, um, and Jay, maybe you can talk, Fernando's numbers kind of in between are actually much better than Seaver's that year. Um, It's not as close as, let's call it, the old way we used to look at things. 14-2 and is not necessarily better than 13-6. But in my 18 going on 19 world, it was a crime against humanity that Seaver didn't win the Cy Young Award. Um, So yes, 
I'm, I'm in agreement, but kind of no, as we understand the numbers a little bit better. Okay. And, all right, so now let's talk about Fernando Mania. Uh, a little, anything that, as you started to write the book, did anything uh, really shock you or surprise you? As, I'm sure you remembered Fernando yeah. Mania as a, as a teenager. Right. But, but, but where I was, so in the, in the fall of 1980, I was a freshman at SUNY Buffalo, um, and the Dodgers played a one-game playoff against the Astros. Uh, and Fernando had been a September call-up, and he, he pitched scoreless innings all through September. Um, what I didn't realize then, what I real, realized as I was working on a book, that Lasorda had considered starting him, but instead started Dave Goltz, which was a disaster. Um, which seems obvious to all of us, right? Uh, so in 81, Fernando was somewhat known. Um, his picture was uh, like on the cover of the media guide, but he was in no way going into that season as the number one starter. It was Royce, it was Hooten, but through myriad injuries, Fernando got the call, opening day, shuts out the Astros, and then pitches five shutouts in his first seven starts. So even though I was very far, you know, being out east and, be, and being in Buffalo, um, it was the story of the early part of the season. What was interesting to me was really kind of reading about ground zero of the mania, which was L.A., I mean, there are really incredible stories of him being swarmed by people um, and not knowing how to deal with it. You know, he was 20, uh, he, he spoke, but not fluently. And, you know, one of the things that's interesting about 81, there's two things that we kind of forget about a little bit. One is strikes happened all the time. Strikes in industries, every industry happened, and now they rarely do, if ever. The other thing is, you know, John Lennon was killed December 8, 1980. The Pope was shot in early 1981. Reagan was shot in early 81. So the idea of kind of crazed fans had a very different connotation. Uh, and for a 20-year-old kid, 20-year-old kid from Mexico to be surrounded like that uh, certainly had to be scary. And he, he spent you know chunks of time alone you know on road trips and things. So I think being out east, I don't think any of us really got the depth of what it meant out west. I'm gonna. Uh, I'm just about to turn it over to the uh, Intelligent Clubhouse crowd for their <laughs> questions, but I do have one Fernando story because yeah. it sort of brings in politics too. Mm-hmm. And it's not 1981; it's ni- it's 1990. So I had worked on Mayor Kachi's campaigns, okay. and he lost in '89 to David Dinkins. Right. No comments, but <laughs> as the mayor said, "You wanted me out; you, you shall now be punished." You know. So uh, I was in Chicago. <laughs> uh, so 1990, I was working at that time. I had left politics. And I was working for the sports agent firm, and Cal Daniels. Some of the okay, people sure. may remember Cal Daniels. He was kind of a good hitter and mm-hmm. had some good years. He was with the Dodgers that year. So my boss said, "I, I don't want to go out to Shea Stadium. You go out there and just see Cal after the game and mm-hmm. talk to him and say hello." So I'm waiting. Game's over. Waiting for him to come out of the clubhouse. Hi, hey, Cal. How you doing? Blah, blah, blah. <laughs> so that was it. So Cal whatever he was going to do, he was going to then go do that night. So I go back to take the subway. So I'm on the subway, but by then it's empty because it's so long after the game (laughs) at this point. And I'm on the subway, and I get on the subway car, and there's two other guys get on. One guy I didn't recognize. The other guy was Fernando Valenzuela. (laughs) And we're just sitting there, and he was very shy uh, sitting there. And next thing I know, you know, in between the subway cars, the doors open, and some guy comes running through... Uh-huh. Covered in blood, <laughs> through, the, <laughs> through the subway car, 
and he was petrified. And then about 30 seconds later, another guy comes running through with a baseball bat, <laughs> chasing the first guy. <laughs> and he was petrified the rest of the way. So then, then I kind of helped him. Right. Uh, he was so nervous. Yeah. So here was this guy. By then, he was already beyond the star, you yeah. know, but he's on a subway with a guy <laughs> covered in blood running, you right. know. <laughs> and on that note, we're all through the president. Who was the mayor then? David uh, Jenkins. Uh, As I said, no And you blame him. You blame <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I saw that... Uh, I looked at baseball reference that, uh, let's say, St. Louis and Cincinnati had the most wins. Uh, how was it determined how the playoffs were structured and why teams like Cincinnati and St. Louis weren't included? When the strike was settled, the union um, said to the owners, you can figure out what you want to do. So, of course, the owners <laughs> screwed it up. They came up. There was a lot of internal debate, a lot of plans put forth by different owners about how to resume the season. Um, what was decided on, and certainly had the support of Bowie Kuhn, was to split the season, to start afresh. So the first half winners were automatically in the playoffs. Only the Phillies voted against their own interests. The Yankees and the Dodgers and the A's all said, you know, yes, it's for the good of the game. We vote yes, and we're a shorter playoff spot. Um, there was actually, I won't get into it too much, the first plan actually created a condition where teams could conceivably throw games to get in the playoffs by ensuring that the first half winner was the second half winner, they would lock in the playoffs. So Whitey Herzog, Tony LaRusso spotted that right away, as you would think guys like that would. Yeah. <laughs> Did Whitey Herzog actually say he would activate himself yes. and play catcher yeah. Yeah. And, and to, to throw a game? Yeah. LaRusso was a little more coy. He said, uh, I'm not going to throw the game. I just won't let them go out on the field. <laughs> it's a, quite a parsing of it. So the owners end up deciding on this split season format. Dick Wagner of the Reds, president of the Reds, said in the owners' meeting, but we finished a half game out of the Dodgers in the first half. What if we finished a half game out of the Astros in the second half? We won't get in. And he voted no. And that's exactly what happened. <laughs> not, not maybe in that game's backup. So the Reds had the best record in all of baseball, didn't make the playoffs. The Cardinals had the best record in the AL East and didn't make the playoffs. Another thing motivating Kuhn and the owners was there was something in their national contracts that gave MLB the right to add a level of playoffs. So they felt this was something that they could capitalize on. Interestingly and not surprisingly, Sealing, his owner of the Brewers, was very much behind, you know, in support of that. But the first round of playoffs was kind of a disaster, ratings-wise. And, you know, in retrospect, that probably delayed the beginning of a third level of playoffs till the mid-90s, that maybe without the kind of quickly cobbled-together scheme, that was just an artistic failure. Um, perhaps we would have had a third round earlier. So that's how it came about. The owners decided this was the way. And what's interesting is, had they resumed the season there were really great pennant races. The top five teams in the American League East were like two games apart over the regular season. Um, by having a split season, um, the Royals, who were under 500 for the whole year, were the second half winners. They got trounced by the A's. Um, but the hopes of increased attendance for like the Mariners wasn't really going to happen. So it was, it was another owner decision. Who wants to 
Five seconds. You're right about how the strike affected the players and how some of them had to go fight part-time jobs. Mm-hmm. What about how it affected the always the ancillary positions, mm-hmm. the vendors, the mom-and-pop stores that sell memorabilia? How did the strike affect right. them? Those are the people who kind of suffered without recourse, right? So the owners, um, while they lost tens of millions of dollars, also had $50 million in strike insurance, of which they collected $44 million of. It's no fluke that the strike ended about a week before the strike insurance ran out. So <laughs> talk about a prime motivating factor in a fight for your principles. Um, the players certainly suffered. I, I saw Dave Winfield last year. We were talking. Uh, he said, you know, I... I lost the most money that year of anybody. He also made the most money. <laughs> <laughs> but I think Dave lost like 385000 But Dave Winfield was going to recover. Guys who were maybe in the middle of the salary pack, guys who, you know, rocked that you know, Maybe that money wasn't coming back, depending on your career. But the people who had bars, restaurants near ballparks certainly weren't going to get money back in the future. What's interesting when you think about it is a lot of stadiums back then, as opposed to the new breed of stadiums, had a bit less of that, right? So, I mean, I went to Chase Stadium pretty much my entire youth. Uh, I don't recall ever eating near there because of where it was situated. When we moved to Chicago in 87, there was Wrigley right in the middle. Comiskey a little less so. There's a bit of a walk to some area stuff. So some of the stadiums I'm sure that are... Like Dodger Stadium, there's nothing like right next to it. Um, but Fenway, people got you know devastated. Cleveland, another place where people just really got hurt because they were still downtown stadiums. The ballpark industrial complex. Yes, isn't quite what it is. No. Yeah, now it's all self-contained. Perry, what about the umpires? Because I've seen recall <laughs> that in 1979 the umpires had a strike of their own. They had a union chief, Richard Phillips. Were they included in any of the negotiations or the discussions? No, the owners, the owners always, the umpires always had their separate thing. And you're right, you know, they started in the late '70s. Phillips ended up having his own issues. The the umpires did try to make kind of a stand to get their payback before the All Star game. Um, They said they weren't going to work it, and then basically the response was. We'll find umpires. Not, <laughs> you're not going to stop the All-Star game. So the umpires were also affected adversely, um, but they did have their own union. They were not did part. They get their money? Did they I don't believe so. Not that I can recall. No. And in fact, um, one of the interesting stories that Doug Sensei told me was, you know, in the history of the union, the union had offered membership to coaches um, to be part of the union, and. The decision was that managers and coaches were management. So when the strike was settled, the sensei would go out to third base and just get a hell of a lot of invective from coaches on third base who would say, you know, I heard that you wouldn't let us get paid, which was not the case. The union had made efforts to have the coaches put in. Billy Martin was going to, sh- to walk out of the playoffs unless he and his coaches were paid, you know, the team ended up paying for it. So there are people then and now, you know, the antitrust exemption still is what makes the minor league system what the minor league system is, and those guys don't get that same union representation. Strike 34 years ago. Did you find, based on your memory of the strike, and writing the book now, did you find research easier now because it's a delay 
Well, research is easier now. Well, there are a couple of things. There's like, let's say, more traditional research. I was fortunate that, like I said, I started early so I could talk to Miller and Grevy. By the time I actually got set to the writing of the book, Bowie Kuhn had died and his papers were at the Hall of Fame and catalog. Miller had died and his papers were at NYU. Um, Harry Dalton, general manager of the Brewers, his papers are at the Hall of Fame. So all of a sudden, I had access to stuff that no one had had access to. In fact, you know, one of the shocking things was, if you followed the story, if you were involved in the story, you knew the owners weren't bargaining fairly. Now, they put out this pretense of bargaining fairly, but the union was like, they're really not, which is why the NLRB took the case. When you read, I was actually shocked by this, Harry Dalton has like notes that are almost like transcripts of meetings, where Greeby is saying, like, we are not negotiating, we are assuming that our compensation is a done deal. Like, this is all written down. Like, I, I couldn't actually believe there was this stuff. Um, so the old-fashioned research was a bit better. But what's amazing to everyone in this room who writes about baseball, to have baseball reference, to have retro sheet, to have YouTube, you know, better writers than me can paint a scene out of their memory or out of the printed word. For me, it was quite easy to watch Pete Rose break Stan Musial's record <laughs> and write about it. <laughs> there it is. I didn't have to remember, like, how long was his hair, you know, did he grab his cap when he did it's right there. So, in some ways, I think baseball is much easier to write about. The union stuff was a little harder because that was kind of more kind of digging in the trenches research. You uh, you mentioned the the delay of the extra round of the playoffs, possibly because of what happened to anyone. Do you see any other strands of 1981 in today's game, positive or negative? So. Um. You know, some of the things that I'm not as well-versed as others on, on the current collective bargaining agreement, when I see these qualifying offer things that strike me as kind of an ownership win in terms of compensation and that first attempt to sign, you know, I understand people having no sympathy for Stephen Drew for passing up $20 million and signing for 14 or whatever the numbers were. But that's beside the point, right? No one had sympathy for Dave Winfield when he signed for $10 million. So what I think is important about Miller and, and a few people who have talked to me, you know, when Miller uh, spoke out against drug testing, it came from the same place that everything came from. These are workers' rights issues. This is not about money. It's not about preserving revenue. These are worker rights issues. And don't believe that an anonymous test is anonymous. Mm -hmm. And who got screwed the most? love him or hate him, A-Rod. His anonymous test was leaked. Miller was right. There was a sense he was out of touch, but he wasn't. He, he stuck with worker rights. Um, I think what the players did that year in preserving free agency really preserved the game. You know, in the first few years of free agency, there was more competitive balance, more movement of players, obviously. No less no more change in overall roster composition than in the 60s. Leonard Coppett wrote a column about that saying it's still the same amount of change year to year. Um, and if you think about what happened in the rest of the 80s, there were more different teams in the playoffs and World Series than in any other decade. That kind of change, not through free agency, but through the rise of local 
TV revenues. In 1981, the Expos had the biggest TV contract locally, $5 million. Um, so it all depended. You know, when the Yankees took over with billion-dollar deals with Yes, that's what skewed the system, not free agency. Uh, and, you know, there's many people in this room who have grown up on the East Coast, like I did, fed this line that is completely false, that the golden era of baseball was from the late 40s to the early 60s, which was true if you were a fan of the Yankees or the New York Giants <laughs> or the Brooklyn Dodgers. If you were a fan of the Phillies or the A's, that was a pretty lousy time, save one season. If you were a fan in Boston, what a disaster. <laughs> in Chicago, except for the 59 Sox, so the owners were very much trying to go back to those good old days where the best teams with the biggest resources and the biggest clout within the league, within baseball, always ran the show. What free agency did was give every fan of every team a chance to have their team compete. And I think that can't be underestimated. It's a very cute and unfair analysis of baseball uh, labor relations to say the players are greedy, end of story. It's a nonsense argument. Ultimately, the players can make demands, but the players don't write the checks. The owners write the checks. And what the owners tried to do in 81 was create a system to prevent them from doing the things they were doing, not what the players were doing. So that the players winning that strike was a, had huge repercussions until now. How did Marvin Miller keep the players in? What what Miller did was kind of educate, listen. He he didn't impose on the players. This is kind of an owner line, right? So Marvin tells these dummies what to do, and because they're uneducated athletes, they say yes. That's not in any way the reality. Marvin would explain the terrain, the laws, what was possible, and hear from the players what they wanted to pursue. The players are team conscious to begin with, so in a grand scheme, the union is a big team. Um, it wasn't really hard for him to keep everyone in line because they were by nature in line, from the biggest guys to the smallest guys. We talked about it earlier. The people on the front lines in the 70s and 80s were Brooks Robinson, Tom Seaver, Johnny Bench. These were not small timers. So when the, the lesser players saw that Tom Seaver or Dave Winfield was willing to take a salary cut that was a missing in salary that was more than they might make in their career, it certainly made them willing to be in line. Where the players started to fragment a little bit, uh, and Miller said to me and, and, and said in other places that his biggest mistake was when Secretary of Labor Ray Donovan got involved from the Reagan White House. He asked if there could be like a news blackout. Because part of the problems with the negotiations in New York was they'd negotiate, they'd come to the press room, they'd <laughs> say stuff that would become the beginnings of the next negotiations. <laughs> it's like, you said this, that's not true, that's a lie. You know. um, that didn't hurt the owners. The owners had... Uh, three-person communication system. Each one of those three talked to nine owners or whatever the number was, and they got the story. Granted, they fed them all different stories, but that was the communication. The players had 600 players all over the country, out of the country, 
who could only get the information through the press conference and, uh, and media coverage. So when that blackout occurred, you started seeing things, comments from guys like Dan Schatzer or Champ Summers from the Tigers, uh, but also most devastatingly from Dave Loeb to so the Dodgers. The uh, negotiations were almost coming to a close. Greeby had been kind of pushed to the side. Lee McPhail had entered it. Everyone respected Lee McPhail. Lee McPhail is kind of talking aloud. You do do this in labor negotiations. You talk aloud to make sure you understand what everyone is putting forth. Um, McPhail's talking. The players are there. Steve Rogers, Sensei Miller. And all of a sudden, someone bursts into the room, I forget who, and says, we're done here. We're done here. And McPhail's like, what? <laughs> you know, word had hit the right. Chris Mortensen, later from ESPN, I forget, Long Beach newspaper, had put out a story that Dave Lope said, you know, who are Bob Boone and Doug say These guys are not lawyers. Who are they to be involved in this stuff? They're, they're messing things up. They're screwing things up. And it just dropped the curtain on what was almost a settlement. What it caused the union to do was hit the road. There was a meeting in Chicago at O'Hare. Um, Cubs, uh, Mike Kruko and Bill Buckner were getting very antsy. Miller kind of explained the story, explained where they were, asked the players if they were, you know, would you want to vote for where the owners are now? Or mm-hmm. Left that meeting completely unified. In L.A., uh, at a meeting in LAX, it was very angry. Lopes was there. There was a lot of tension. Um, but finally, everybody got the real story of what was behind the time. Lopes was quite contrite and apologized to the sensei, and, and the union stuck together. But by nature, it's a cohesive group. I, ironically, and maybe that's not the right word, tragically, the thing that really has split the players is PEDs. Nothing economic has ever really split the players, but PEDU seems to have. Uh, this is Lee, Lee Lowenfish, that's going to be our hey, last Lee. question. Hey, Lee. Did you interview Dick Morse for your book? I called Dick a few times. I never got a call back. Because in terms of the question that was asked about how did Miller succeed, mm-hmm. Dick Morse is the most unrecognized yeah. man in right. history. Because in this history, mm-hmm. because they, he worked with Miller with the steel workers. Right. And Moss was a big fire fan. Yeah. And and he loved baseball mm-hmm. and was a great uh, yeah. boy. Marvin Miller didn't particularly love baseball, but he hated owners. And, <laughs> 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 and did you try to speak to Dave Lopes? I did reach out. You know, there's only so much saying yeah. hi on the mayor of Cooperstown gets you. <laughs> <laughs> But I did try. So because of a time factor, we're going to have to close up the podcast. We'll be selling the book back here. For those listening to the podcast, you can either get it through us or anywhere. Uh, The last word, we're going to give the last word to the first words of Jeff Katz. This is the dedication to the book, which I really enjoyed. So the book opens with Jeff's dedication to the players who play the game we love. The book... Split season 1981, Fernando Mania, The Bronx Zoo, and The Strike That Saved Baseball, published by Thomas Dunn Books, written by Jeff Katz. Thank you, Mr. Mayor. Thank you.